0: to Romans 14. Romans chapter 14. And Mount Hermon, this is a vitally important chapter of the Bible because it's all about this issue. How are we to treat one another when we disagree with one another? we live in a fallen world and we are sinful. You don't have to be in a church or in any relationship at all for more than five minutes to discover this is really helpful. Because we're going to disagree. There are going to be times when God's people even disagree. So how do we love Christ... And how do we love each other even when we do not see certain issues the same way? Now, some truths and some principles are clearly stated in Scripture. If anyone comes to the Bible with an objective heart and mind, willing to receive what it says... There can be no doubt about those truths and those principles. Is Jesus the Son of God? That's clear as day. The Bible affirms it and affirms it over and over. Surely this was the Son of God, the centurion cries at the foot of the cross. (laughs) Stealing is wrong. There can be no doubt about it. It's it's clear. Thou shalt not steal. As Christians, the Bible is at the center of our unity together. And Jude calls us to defend the faith once for all delivered to the saints. So to stand together as Christians, we must have some agreement About what the faith is, what these truths are that we hold to, what these truths are that we are to defend side by side together. And there are some truths that are so clear and so fundamental and so basic in Scripture that you simply cannot be a Christian while denying those truths. The holiness of God, the sinfulness of man. The divinity of Jesus, his death, his resurrection, his second coming. These are fundamental, absolute, clear truths of the faith. Here in our church, we use two confessions of faith that help us to articulate what we believe the Bible teaches. And these two confessions express the faith that is found in the scripture. The first is the confession that we just read from a few minutes ago. We read from it most Sunday mornings. It was the confession that was a part of this church when it was founded back in 1903. It's called the New Hampshire Confession, and it articulates what we believe. It teaches the Trinity, the sovereignty and goodness of God, Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The necessity of being born again, the importance of the local church, and more. That confession teaches the truths that unite us here in this church. The second confession is the one that we use for our pastoral leadership. In our constitution, we require our elders to be in uh, significant agreement with the London Baptist Confession that we've been studying on Wednesday nights. It's more detailed, it's more specific than the New Hampshire Confession. Uh, it would be probably a little overwhelming to a brand new believer. But our Constitution does require that any candidate for a pastoral office at our church hold to that confession, Why? Because we want to make sure that the leadership of our church is always in agreement about what they understand the Bible to teach on the most important subjects. And both of those confessions, the New Hampshire and the London Baptist Confession, they have lots of scripture verses referenced at the end of each paragraph. Why? Because we're convinced that the truths we believe are taught in the Bible. Our agreement is not first and foremost around these confessions. Our agreement is rooted in the Bible itself and then articulated for us in those confessions. We live in a day in which most American Christians are woefully ignorant of their own Bibles. There has never been a day when owning a Bible has been more common and knowing the Bible has been so rare. Never before have American Christians been so eager and had so much opportunity to make their stances on absolutely everything known to the world. All over social media, people share their convictions and their opinions And yet, at the same time, those convictions and opinions are often completely opposite to what Scripture teaches. I dare say that the vast majority of disagreements between Christians today could be resolved. If we would just go back to the Bible and see what it says. Think about the debates that have been recently raging in the United Methodist Church. Should a church affirm homosexuality? Should a church appoint homosexual ministers? There has been so much debate, so much emotion, so much hurt feeling, so much back and forth in that denomination over that truth. And in fact, all you really have to say is, what do the scriptures say? What has God said to us on that subject? Because the Bible is not vague. The Bible is not unclear. You have to work to make the Bible unclear if you want to try and hold certain positions. But Mount Hermon, even when we are united, In a desire to submit ourselves to the Bible. Even when we as a church say, this is our authority. And we're going to be in agreement around this authority. We can still find ourselves at times in disagreement. Why? As an introduction to this chapter and to this series. There will be five sermons on this series in this chapter. Let me just begin with four reasons why we might disagree with one another. Four reasons why we might disagree with one another and therefore why you should come to this chapter knowing your need for it. Number one is lack of knowledge. Uh, In a church, all of us have gaps in our knowledge. Even if you've been studying the Bible for decades, there are truths that you've missed. Often there will be new Christians among us who are at the beginning of their discipleship. There's much that they do not yet know. There is much yet for them to learn. I think all of us would admit we have so much more to learn. There is so much still that we do not know from the pages of the Bible. And that lack of knowledge can put us in disagreement with one another. And so I want you to listen to this example from 1 Corinthians 8, okay? In Corinth, Christians were divided about an issue, and here was their issue of disagreement in that church. Is it okay to eat meat that was first sacrificed to pagan idols? You see, often the meat that people bought in the marketplace in Corinth had come from Through the temples first and then made its way to the marketplace. Animals were slaughtered in the service of pagan gods in the temples of Corinth. And then once the sacrifices were done, the meat was taken out to the marketplace to be sold. So put yourself in that situation. If you lived in first century Corinth, would you allow your family to purchase and to eat meat from the marketplace knowing that it comes from an animal that was sacrificed to Jupiter or to Mars or to Venus. Here's what Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. All those temples to all those gods where those animals are being sacrificed, those gods aren't real. Those are imaginary gods. They're false gods. And when animals are sacrificed to these false gods, they're not really being sacrificed to anything at all because the gods aren't real Moreover, the God that we believe in, the God that is true, the God that created those animals, well, all things come from Him. All things exist for Him. Don't sweat eating this meat. It's perfectly fine to eat this meat. God made those animals. If you receive that meat with prayer and thankfulness, you're good. But then listen carefully to what He says next. This is 1 Corinthians 8, picking up in verse 7. However... Not all possess this knowledge. Not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. So there's a clear principle that's being taught. It is okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols. Yet, Paul says, be patient, because not everyone yet has this knowledge. People don't come to Jesus Christ and become Christians and immediately know it all. They have to learn. And it takes time to learn. So be patient with those who don't yet have this knowledge. And don't put a stumbling block in their path. And we're going to talk in Romans 14 about what it means to be a stumbling block. But here's what I want us to see right now. A lack of knowledge can lead to disagreement. Well, second... We might disagree for this reason. Sometimes Christian hearts and minds take time to embrace even the clearest scriptural truths and principles. In other words, sometimes the teaching of of the Bible on a subject is very clear, but it's so contrary to what we always thought. It's so contrary to what we had always heard. It it cuts so deeply against what we've always known that even though it's clear in the pages of the Bible, it takes us time to come to grips with it. It takes time for it to really sink in. I've shared before that was definitely my experience with the doctrine of election. The Bible is, is very clear that God from eternity past sovereignly chooses all those who will come to faith in Jesus Christ. There's hardly a book in the Bible that doesn't teach the doctrine of election. But when I first heard about it, I hated it. It struck so deep against the man-centered uh, view of the world that I had always held. It, it felt like a sp- By being driven in my soul, it took me months, maybe even a couple of years for me to come to grips with that teaching. Not because it was vague in the Bible. It was just hard for me to swallow. So we must be patient with each other. We must be willing to help one another, knowing that sometimes coming to accept God's truth is a process. A sanctifying process of humbling ourselves to embrace what God has said. Number three, why do we need this chapter? There can be disagreements in a church because there are some biblical truths and principles that are less clearly stated and less easily understood. Now, on the essentials, the Bible is clear. But there are still some truths that are important on which the Bible is not as clear. For example, how precisely is the end of the world going to come about? How's the end of the world going to come about? I mean, I have a view about the end times. And I'm 99.9% sure I'm right. Okay? I'm pretty sure. I, I think it's pretty clear in the pages of the Bible about the end times. Nevertheless... I have to confess, whatever your view, we need to confess that some of the passages in the Bible about the end times are difficult. Sometimes they're hard to understand and to make sense of. And therefore, Christians are going to have some disagreements about this. Not all truths are equally clearly as taught in the pages of the Bible. And so we will have times where we disagree. Number four, we might disagree with one another because the application of even the clearest truths and principles can be difficult. In other words, you and I might agree on the truth, the biblical truth. You and I might agree on the biblical principle, but it's the application we disagree on. And to be honest, this is where a lot of disagreement happens in a local church. We start from the same place. We start with the same basic truth and the same moral doctrines. But but as you begin to work that out, and you're working it out in your life, and I'm working it out in my life, and we begin to see differences. Oh, y'all, well, I won't go there yet. This is why we need Romans 14. Bible-believing Christians can and do disagree. Is it a sin for a Christian to get a tattoo? Is it wrong for Christians to drink alcohol recreationally? Is smoking okay for a Christian? Do you let your kids read Harry Potter? I've seen Christian moms go back and forth with each other about whether or not moms should breastfeed in public. I've seen passionate debates about whether or not it's a sin to use cuss words if you're using that strong language to try and make a good point. Is it wrong to send your child to a state-sponsored public school? Is it wrong for a local church to endorse a political candidate? If marijuana was legalized, Would it be okay for Christians to use it? Can a Christian ever vote for a pro-abortion candidate? Is it okay to attend a gay wedding? Is it okay to listen to secular music? Is the practice of cremation allowable? Mount Hermon, in any given local church in our area, you're going to have people on both sides of pretty much every single one of those issues. Bible-believing Christians. On both sides of every one of those issues. And the world scoffs at all this. The world says, get off your scruples Stop worrying about what's right, what's wrong. Just do what you want. Follow your heart. The world knows nothing of the true life of liberty. Because Romans 12 told us that we worship Jesus by learning to abhor what is evil and to hold fast to what is good. And Ephesians 5.15 says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise. Look carefully how you walk, We can't just shrug these things off. We we can't act like they don't matter. These issues matter. We must live thoughtful lives, doing our very best to live out the glorious truths of Scripture. We're not our own, we were bought with a price. That price was the precious blood of Jesus Christ. We belong to him, and we're to seek to live lives that glorify him and all that we think and all that we say and all that we do. And so because we're not our own, because we are ambassadors of Jesus, we've got to be thoughtful, sober-minded, careful to do what is right. And we must confess there really are right answers to these questions. The world looks at these disagreements and says, well, maybe one view is right for you and the other view is right for them. Maybe, maybe you have your truth and for you, getting a tattoo is morally right. And they have their truth and for them, it's getting a, getting a tattoo is morally wrong. You see, it's all relative. The Bible doesn't let us talk that way. Putting aside all surrounding circumstances at bottom, right? Either getting a tattoo is sinful or it's not. Either drinking alcohol recreationally is sinful or it's not. Either attending a gay wedding is wrong or it's not. There are always extenuating circumstances that affect these things. And those circumstances can take something that is right and make it wrong right so if getting a tattoo really can be morally right but that tattoo is of a naked woman suddenly what was okay is no longer okay so something can be morally right and then by the circumstances made wrong however if something at bottom is wrong you can't make it right that's not how it works if something is intrinsically wicked, if something is sinful in and of itself, no circumstances can change that. So we can't fall into the trap of postmodernism, saying, well, what's right for you is right for you. It can be wrong for me. If I were in your shoes and you were, we cannot talk that way. There is a right and there is a wrong. Nevertheless, and I'm almost done with the introduction to the whole series. It was going to be longer this morning. Not the whole sermon is going to be longer. Just the introduction is longer. I don't want you to live in fear and anxiety over those things. While it's true, you make a thousand decisions a day. Right? And you could get paralyzed trying to, to figure out, oh, what about the... You are to live thoughtfully... But you're not to allow these questions to paralyze you. It is possible for a person to get so introspective, so caught up worrying about this, that they're afraid to walk out of their door. That there are 10,000 ways I might sin today. Let me just stay in bed. If you live in a fallen world, it is so fallen, and it is fallen. That sometimes you're going to sin even when you're absolutely convinced that you're doing right. At the end of the day, Christ calls us to do our best and he gives us grace. He calls you to be as wise as he gives you the grace to be. But he also calls you to rest in the fact that all of your sins, dear Christian, past, present and future are all forgiven. Take these moral questions seriously. Seek to live for the glory of Jesus, but don't let them paralyze you. You have a mission to fulfill. You have callings God has given you to do for the glory of the one who died for you. So always trusting in the mercy of Jesus, always being thankful that you need his grace even more today than you did yesterday. Strive to live a thoughtful life. Okay, so how do we honor Christ and fulfill His mission together if I think one thing about an issue and you think another thing about that issue? How can Christians love Christ and love each other when there is some disagreement between them? This is not just abstract. Sometimes, it's just, sometimes this just falls in your lap when you didn't expect it. Uh, maybe... Two church members are traveling in the same car together. And one of them is listening to Mix 101.5. And the other says, can we please turn that? I don't listen to secular music. Or maybe you believe that drinking alcohol recreationally is a sin. And you're over at a church member's house and you're getting ready for dinner and they're bringing out the wine. Are you going to say something? You're not going to say something? Are you going to drink it even though you know it? You think it's a sin? Maybe you're convinced that Christians should not go out to eat on a Sunday. But some folks in the church found out it's your birthday. And they've all been planning to take you out. After church today. Surprise! But you think it's it's a sin. How are you going to handle that situation? All right, the rest of our time, let's just begin to see the answers given to us here in Romans 14. So let's read verses 1 through 12. Verses 1 through 12. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. One person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, observe it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. Every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Okay, so our plan is to unpack this chapter over the next five weeks using questions. And here's our first question Who is the weak Christian? Who is the weak Christian? You see verses one and two, that's where we're starting, and it speaks of this person, the weak Christian. Paul gives us instruction here about how you're to relate to the weak Christian. So who is it? You have to know who it is if you're going to know how to relate to them. Are you sitting next to a weak Christian? Are you a weak Christian? How how do we know? Well, looking at this passage, we see at least three truths about the weak Christian. Okay? So here we go. Number one, the weak Christian Holds a false conviction. The weak Christian holds a false conviction. In our passage, the weak Christian is one who has come to a false conviction about something. That is, they're sure of it, but they're wrong. Uh, The example Paul uses is an issue he expects to be a problem there at the church in Rome... And remember, he's writing this letter from Corinth. Paul was living in Corinth, working with the church in Corinth when he writes this letter to the Romans. And almost everybody agrees this was right in front of Paul there in Corinth. And he probably assumes it's a problem in Rome too. And so the example of a false conviction that Paul uses here is the conviction that it's better to abstain from meat and from wine. We see this in verse 2. When Paul says that the weak Christian eats only vegetables, we see it even more clearly down in verse 21 when Paul's talking about how to love the weak brother and he says that it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that would cause that brother to stumble. So the weak Christian that Paul has in mind in Romans 14 is one who holds the false conviction that eating meat or drinking wine is sinful. So a false conviction. Second truth about the weak Christian. The false conviction often involves calling unclean what Christ has called clean. The weak Christians conviction often involves calling something unclean that Christ has declared clean. We see this over and over in the pages of the New Testament. Followers of Jesus trying to restrict their own freedom by declaring off limits what God has not declared off limits. Some parts of God's good creation is declared by the weak Christian to be not good for Christians. These believers make the Christian life more difficult than it needs to be more restrictive than it needs to be, imagining that some parts of God's creation are inherently evil and must be avoided. And then third, and this is very important, the weak Christian holds this conviction sincerely, seeking to honor the Lord. The weak Christian might have a wrong conviction, but they have a right heart in the matter. You understand that? Now, Herman, the weak Christian here is not a legalist. There's nothing in this passage that says the weak Christian is claiming you must do this to go to heaven or you must not do that or you can't go. The weak Christian in Romans 14 is not like the false teachers in Galatians or places like that in the Bible false teacher saying you must earn God's favor through moral living. That is not the case here. The weak Christian is truly a Christian. His faith may be weak, but he's got faith. His hope of heaven is in the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel of salvation alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He has embraced that gospel. This person has been wonderfully saved. And this false conviction it's coming from that heart of faith that is, the Christian's really trying to please Jesus. The, the Christian really is trying to live a life that honors Christ. He's just trying to honor Christ in ways that Christ never commanded. The reason his weak is faith, the reason his faith is weak is simply that his faith is misinformed. The weak Christian's faith is malnourished because it's untaught or poorly taught on this issue. He has come to a conviction that is inaccurate. The Christian is truly trying to do what is right, but isn't right about what's right on that issue. Now remember, when Paul writes this, these Christians didn't yet have a New Testament. Think about how different our lives would be without a New Testament. These early Christians didn't have that. They were very dependent on what their pastors and their teachers taught them. And some of these Christians were coming from Jewish backgrounds where so much was off limits to them. I mean, the Jews took pride in their heritage and their heritage was full of you can't have this and you can't have that and you don't touch that and you don't do that. Restriction, 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 restriction you would expect that many of these Jews who came to Christ would have had a hard time letting go of some of those restrictions. They were bringing the baggage of their past worldview into their new Christian life. And by the way, we do the same thing. When you become a Christian, you become a new creation. But in many ways, you are still the same person. All the things that you thought and believed and have been taught up to that point in your life when you came to Jesus, they don't just disappear, not typically. It takes time for your worldview to be refined. For you to purge those things that you used to believe that you're now realizing were wrong. For you to to embrace things that you thought were wrong that you're now realizing are right. So let's be clear. These weak Christians are genuine believers Seeking to honor the Lord Jesus Christ. And when people in this church disagree with us on some particular truth or principle not immediately related to the gospel, we should never jump to the conclusion that they're not a Christian. You ever heard people do that? You believe Christians can get tattoos? I don't even think you're saved. You would attend a gay wedding? You're not a real follower of Jesus. Don't ever do that. If it's, now, if they say, I don't think Jesus rose from the dead, oh, that's different. But if we're not talking about gospel issues, if we're not talking about the clear, basic, fundamental things of the Bible, don't go questioning their salvation just because they see the issue differently. There is a crucial difference between the unbeliever who lives with no faith and the weak Christian who has simply a misinformed faith. All right, let's end this morning with our second question. Why was this conviction about abstaining from meat and wine a false conviction? Why did Paul declare that those Christians in Rome... And in Corinth, who believed that you should not eat meat, you shouldn't drink wine, why did he declare that a false conviction? Why did he say that meant their faith was weak? Well, what these weak Christians lacked was the knowledge that Paul makes clear down in verse 14. For the Christian, nothing is unclean in itself. Let me say this again. This is wonderfully freeing and helpful to all kinds of things in the Christian life. For the Christian, nothing is unclean in itself. Paul says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. And We'll talk about that when we get there. Right now, just notice the first half of that verse. Let it it fall on you. If you're in Christ, and you're seeking to live a life of faith in Him, then there is nothing in this world that God has made that is unclean in itself. God created the world, and it was good. There is nothing in the world that is intrinsically evil. That is nothing that God has made. Now, of course, we can take what God made and make it evil. You can take something God made and twist it, and you can abuse it, and you can misuse it. But in and of itself, nothing is unclean. Listen to how Paul explained this to Timothy. This is 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith, By devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Listen to that strong language. Paul is describing these false teachers teaching the doctrine of demons. Their consciences are seared. They're trying to lead the children of God astray. And what do these false believers, what do these false teachers do? Verse 3, they forbid marriage. And they require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. You know, Paul, in other words, Paul just gives two examples, marriage and food. And he says these false teachers are trying to tell Christians that they must abstain from these things. And then Paul gives this principle. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. What do you think about that? Is this the truth of the Bible that you've come to grips with? Everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected. If it is received with thanksgiving. If you're using something God created and you're using it in accordance with His Word, with gratitude and in prayer, then it is good. You're to live in gratitude. You're to live in prayer. You're to depend on God. You're to live according to the principles of God's Word. And so if you're a Christian living in those Christian realities, all that God created is open to you. All of God's creation is yours to be used rightly. So let me close with this. Dear friend, for the Christian, all that God created can be used rightly and purely. But if you're here and you're not a Christian, you cannot use anything without it being made sinful. The last sentence of the chapter. Look at the last sentence of Romans 14. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. If you're here and you're an unbeliever, when you eat an apple, you eat it sinfully. When you drive your car, you drive it sinfully, even when you're staying in the lines and under the speed limit. Everything you do, because you're doing it from a heart... That rejects the precious Son of God given for sinners is sin. When you're a Christian, suddenly the whole world is open to you. And if you follow God's principles, you can use the whole world without sin. If you're an unbeliever, everything is sin. And you're just piling it up, and you're just piling it up, and you're just piling it up, and it'll all come crashing on you on the day of judgment. This is why the life of faith is the life of liberty. The world thinks we poor Christians are shackled to our morals. Oh, no, it is the world and those who live in immorality that are shackled. Everything they do, they're just shackled to more and more sin, more and more guilt before a holy God, and it's going to come upon them in the end. This is why Jesus came to the world. We are all sinners. All of us have misused God's good world. All of us have rebelled against him. And yet Jesus came to ransom sinners. If you will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. If you will run to him in your guilt and sin and shame. And say forgive me Lord. If you will depend on him and him alone to make you right with God. He will not fail you. Indeed the very moment you believe you will have peace with God through Jesus Christ so if you're here and you're not a believer believe if you're here and you are a believer understand the glorious truth that nothing in and of itself is wicked God has made the world for your enjoyment God has made the world for you to do good with it for the glory of his name And we'll continue to unpack Romans 14 and to see how this becomes very helpful even in moments of disagreement let's pray